It's, you know, a matter of, of shared humanity. It's, it's when, when people are shut out from communities because they can't afford to live there, maybe they're not able to access, you know, opportunities for schooling or for um, jobs or for access to, to food, anything like that. It's, I mean, that's, that's a problem. That's something we should care about. This is the DEI podcast. I'm Max Gaston. On today's episode, I'm joined by Annika Nielsen-Kim, an attorney at Legal Aid Chicago who works with homeowners to prevent home loss due to COVID-related hardship and other issues arising from historically unfair housing policies. It's no secret that policies such as redlining have had a lasting effect on communities throughout the United States. Home equity is the largest source of wealth for both black and white households, but widespread discrimination in loan applications and home appraisals have added to the tremendous income gap between black and white families and thwarted black Americans' efforts to create generational wealth. For many low-income families, record unemployment caused by COVID-19 and deaths of income-earning family members have only worsened the systemic and structural inequalities that create housing instability and widen the disparity in economic, health, and social outcomes. Annika and I discuss the system-wide issues that have perpetuated housing inequality for decades. We talk about housing insecurity related to COVID-19 and what Legal Aid Chicago is doing to help keep families in their homes. We then talk about Annika's time in law school at Notre Dame and Annika's background in public interest. Here is Annika Nielsen-Kim. Annika, welcome to the DEI podcast. Thank you, Max. During the pandemic, a lot of single-family mortgage borrowers faced financial difficulty that left them unable to make payments on their mortgage loans. They were able to pause those payments, however, using the expanded mortgage forbearance provisions in the CARES Act, which allowed borrowers with federally backed loans to temporarily suspend their mortgage payments for up to two years. We know that the forbearance staved off the wave of foreclosures that were forecast when the economy dipped, but we also knew that the moratorium would eventually come to an end and that people's mortgage payments were deferred and not forgiven, which meant that there would eventually be an unknown but inevitable number of foreclosures that would resume. Now that we are almost three years removed from the start of the pandemic, how big of an impact has the pandemic truly had on home ownership in Illinois, and where do we stand today? Yeah, so as you said, there were a lot of really important measures that required federally backed mortgages to put loans in forbearance. And so um, at this point, there's certainly not the level of foreclosures that we were seeing during you know, the Great Recession in 2008. And a lot of that is due to these aggressive federal, state, and even local policies that were the the goal was to keep people in their homes. So I still think we're not going to totally know what the what the effect of the pandemic is. I think these foreclosures are starting back up again for those who are still struggling to make payments, and um, and we'll we'll know probably in a couple of years what the real effects were, but. Yeah, those those aggressive federal measures requiring the, you know, the FHA, Fannie, Freddie, VA mortgages to put loans in forbearance, that gave people 
you know, a chance to breathe and, 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 if, you know, if they'd lost a job or, or a family member due to COVID. And then there were also just the, you know, across the board, the economic impact payments and then families getting the advanced child tax credit. These things really helped uh, kind of buoy people who were, um, who were really struggling and, and prevent that widespread foreclosure and home loss. It's interesting because at the same time that there was this huge threat of home loss that we were largely able to avoid because of state and federal assistance programs, there was also this other phenomenon taking place inside the housing market, which was kind of on the opposite extreme of home loss. And what I'm referring to here is the fact that many homeowners and home buyers were actually able to profit off of market conditions during the pandemic and then carry that profit into the present day. So data from the New York Fed shows that there are fewer foreclosures happening today than before the pandemic. You know, numbers well below what the housing market has seen in a more typical year like 2017 to 2018. And so nationally, there are several people who literally have record equity in their homes. And again, you know, the government kept banks from closing on properties for two full years. I guess the question is, why are some people still at risk of losing their homes today due to COVID-related issues? Yeah, yeah. And and that's that's a great question. And I also just wanted, you know, to add to your discussion of what's, you know, this strange sort of some people were kind of flourishing, some people were struggling. Um, you know, the economy was better as well. So so unlike 2008, there's actually, you know, plenty of jobs available or, you know, more certainly more than in those years. And so um so the people who have been able to stave off foreclosure or, you know, keep their homes, a lot of them, even if they struggled early on, were able to, you know, return to a job or get a better job. So that has been another thing that's kept people from from losing their homes. Uh, The people who are still at risk now, a lot of what I'm seeing are for people who were just unable to to return to either a a previous job uh, due to an illness or a death in the family. And so even with the forbearance, they just couldn't uh, they couldn't go go back into making mortgage payments. So what happened when loans come out of forbearance is uh, generally they're required to offer a loan modification to pay back that the amount that they weren't paying. It's not doing a lump sum, but oftentimes that will raise, you know, it will raise the amount um, of the monthly mortgage payment. So if someone's really on the razor, you know, on the razor's edge in terms of being able to make ends meet that, you know, 50, 100 bucks a month will really make a huge difference for them and become unaffordable. Um, so so a lot of times it's, you know, just not being able to make that, that higher uh, payment. Often if they have an illness or an injury or long-term disability as a result of COVID. And then a lot of times I have encountered families who have lost a loved one and uh, there are cases where that loved one is the only one on title and the only one on the mortgage. And so in order for, and if, if they're already behind, in order for the family to, to go back to uh, making regular mortgage payments or trying to get a loan modification, they need to get on title. And what happens is if someone dies without a will, if they die intestate, then in, uh, in Cook County, where I'm working in, in Illinois in general, you have to go through a probate and probate takes time. And so sometimes that's just not possible to get all of that together 
before the home is uh, is sold in a foreclosure sale. Annika, one of the things that you do with Legal Aid Chicago is spearhead a program that assists applicants to the Illinois Homeowners Assistance Fund. Can you just talk a little bit about what the Homeowners Assistance Fund is and the impact that it's having to help keep people in Illinois in their homes? Definitely. So the Homeowner Assistance Fund is part of the American Rescue Plan, which was enacted in March 2021, which provided uh, $9.9 billion to states to help distressed homeowners who experienced hardship due to COVID. And so each state has an agency designated to administer these funds. And so in Illinois, that's the Illinois Housing Development Authority, or IDA. And so IDA's policy is to provide up to $60,000 to households who got behind on their mortgages due to COVID-19, but they'll also fund um, people who weren't able to pay their taxes or condo assessments or insurance. And so these funds are helping people at in what I'm seeing is uh, reinstate their mortgage. So Legal Aid Chicago specifically has been working directly with IDA to help people who owe above that $60,000 cap. And so IDA will not, will not provide funds unless they're sure that the mortgage will be reinstated. And so uh, a lender is not going to reinstate a mortgage if you only partially pay, pay back the, the reinstatement amount, which is usually, you know, the past due amount. And then if it's been in foreclosure, that also includes attorney's fees. So what we do is we, for people who are able to pay that over cap amount, so the amount above 60000 they send the funds to Legal Aid Chicago, which we hold in their client trust account, and then IDA will send us the additional funds, and then we reinstate the mortgage with the lender. So this has been, you know, huge for people. We've worked with multiple people who've been in foreclosure, people with looming sale dates, and we're able to, you know, with the assistance of these funds kind of swoop in and and reinstate the mortgage and make it so that uh, people can go back to making regular payments. The idea of not having a roof over your head is so terrifying. I mean, to come that close to losing your home that there's actually a sale date on the horizon and then you find yourself in a situation where you're not going to lose your home and you have your mortgage reinstated must be incredibly emotional, jarring, tear-inducing, and honestly, probably really exhausting for the homeowner. But, you know, more than anything else, I just imagine that there's this huge sense of relief that you and your family won't be homeless what is that experience like when you're actually able to tell someone you will get to stay in your home? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just so gratifying to be able to tell someone that they're going to get their home out of foreclosure. They're going to be able to keep a home that's been in their family, you know, for, for many, many years. Um, you know, there's often, you know, a lot of tears and then there's a lot of anxiety before we can get before we can get the process through. So it's, I, I love working, you know, directly with clients in this capacity, working with Ida to get these funds. It's sort of this, you know, it's, it's not a very, you know, legally difficult process. We're just advocating for them, you know, requesting extra time, asking Ida to keep their application open, but it's, it's just, um, it really makes a huge difference for people that we're, that we're advocating for them to get these funds and 
and and reinstating the mortgages for them. But it's, I mean, especially for those with with a sale date on the horizon, you know, after after that sale date, you really can't. There's no way to stay in the home, you know, beyond uh, a couple months. So it's it's really just giving people a a new you know, lease on life to use another housing metaphor. For anyone who's listening who might themselves be facing home loss or might know someone who's facing home loss, can you just give us, talk us through what kind of rights and obligations a person in that position would have? Sure. And uh, if I get too in the weeds on this, you can pull me back. (laughs) Um, But basically, For federally backed mortgages, so that's uh, Fannie, Freddie mortgages, FHA, VA, or USDA, when somebody defaults on their mortgage, meaning they fail to make a monthly payment, their lender is generally supposed to reach out to them and offer uh, them options or open up the conversation for loss mitigation. So loss mitigation is, uh, is a number of things that includes forbearance, uh, repayment plans, a loan modification, which would change the terms of the loan, the amount, the uh, interest rate, and the length of the loan. Uh, it could also, loss mitigation could also be something such as a short sale or deed in lieu of foreclosure, which would still result in the loss of the home, but would avoid a foreclosure. So there are all these different options that they're, they, the lenders have to bring up with the borrower. And then once the loan has been delinquent for 120 days, then the lender can initiate foreclosure. But even while the foreclosure is happening, there are rules saying the borrower can attempt to get a loan modification up until 37 days before the foreclosure date. So if they get in a complete application 37 days before, um, I'm sorry, the foreclosure sale, if they can get an application for a loan modification 37 days before the foreclosure sale, the uh, the bank or the lender cannot go through with the foreclosure sale, um, and then there's also a Chapter 13 bankruptcy, which is a, another way to get out of a foreclosure, which is basically a, a payment plan that you know it's not it's not a good idea for everybody, depending on what other debts they have, but it would put them on a payment plan where they're paying back the past due balance on their mortgage and then also making their regular monthly mortgage payments. Um, so, so those, that's sort of how the process goes. There's also something called a notice of error, which is something that you send to the lender. If you believe they've made it a mistake in the servicing of a loan or, or failed to offer something, um, this often happens in the cases of, uh, if there's a divorce or a, a family member dies and you're trying to get somebody else on the loan. And this notice of error sets up the homeowner to be able to push back against the foreclosure, raise counterclaims or, um, or stay a judicial sale. So a little in the weeds, but um, there's there are options. It's not, you know, once you're in foreclosure, you're not doomed. There are definitely options to get out. Yeah, it's really important to know because many times people who do find themselves facing home loss don't really have any knowledge of what their options are and don't always know that there are avenues that are available to them to keep them from losing their homes. Yeah, and and I will add, you know, I've I've spoken to people who who get the 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 notice of foreclosure and just have no idea what to do. And one thing we'll often do is refer people to housing counselors. So, a HUD certified housing counselor. There's 
many in every state and they're trained to work with people and help them work with their lender to apply for loan modifications or they're also helping people apply for the for the the half programs the homeowner assistance fund programs so they're a really really great resource that that provides services to help people mm. get gets access to loss mitigation options mm. So a lot of your work focuses on helping people prevent home loss, specifically due to COVID-19. But I'm curious if any part of what you do steps outside of COVID and just looks at the broader issue of home loss in Illinois and how to help people uh, prevent home loss for any reason. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm working with with people who are experiencing home loss for for any reason. Sometimes there are people who've been in foreclosure for years and it's not really due to COVID that they're struggling. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll talk to people who have been in a bankruptcy, but then weren't ultimately able to make payments. So then, so then foreclosure was, was reinitiated. So yeah, I'm certainly talking with people who for many reasons are, are struggling. So that brings me to the next topic I want to discuss with you, which is equity specifically equity in society and the way that inequity creates and perpetuates problems like going into foreclosure and experiencing risk of home loss. You know, for some people, the economic effects of the COVID pandemic may have dealt perhaps one of the only really significant financial blows they've ever experienced. But for others, the pandemic only exacerbated pre-existing financial hardships caused by historical wealth inequality, racial discrimination in the housing market. We know that access to credit and capital, which is vital for economic development, has historically been withheld from communities of color that are underserved by traditional financial institutions. Talk about the systemic structural inequalities that were underlying housing instability well before the pandemic and how those pre-pandemic barriers have, for some people, only made it that much harder to raise themselves out of financial hardship since the pandemic. Sure. I can talk a little bit about in Chicago some of some of the specific challenges that that people I speak to are experiencing just based on the history of segregation and redlining. So Chicago is an incredibly segregated city. There's you know a long history, as in many cities of urban development and housing policy strategies that were intentionally uh, preventing uh, Black families from living in certain areas or accessing accessing credit to purchase homes. Chicago's got a a large history of redlining and and white flight that left uh, areas that are now predominantly Black just totally disinvested and without, uh, without resources. So that is, that is in a, a present reality. Uh, I work with a lot of people in the South suburbs, which are predominantly uh, Black enclaves, and many are uh, economically distressed. Um, one thing I, I'm, I've been reading up about is, you know, a lot of people will talk about gentrification as a huge issue, which, which it is. It's, uh, you know, rising housing costs, uh, rent in, in areas that are becoming, you know, trendy and getting a lot of um, traction and, and economic interest is a challenge for communities. In Chicago, that tends to be a lot of predominantly Latino or, or Latinx communities. 
Um, where, whereas a lot of the Black communities in Chicago are not necessarily experiencing that that gentrification, and and this is just something that I've been trying to educate myself on. So I, I there are you know plenty of perspectives here, but. Uh, one thing in Chicago and Cook County is you have these areas of concentrated poverty, which are often predominantly Black communities. And in, in these areas, widespread foreclosures can and do lead to plummeting housing or plummeting property values. And so there's even issues that people point to called appraisal redlining, where in low-income areas, appraisers are going to uh, just across the board undervalue property, even if a particular property is not necessarily in another area, maybe appraised at a higher value. So this just leads to really sluggish markets and it's um, hard to get investment. So that's an issue in, in areas of concentrated poverty. And then you have areas of concentrated affluence, which you know are often predominantly white areas. And then, but in those areas, it's really hard to get access to there's a lot of resistance to policies that would allow greater access to housing, both rental and homeownership. So uh, people are against building more housing. They're against building affordable housing. They're against changing the zoning code that would allow for denser building. And so this is something that prevents people who may not be at a higher income bracket from even moving to an area with uh, greater resources, greater access to good education, quality food, quality transportation. Um, and and that's just an issue that that persists. And you know, during the pandemic, it you know continued to persist. And the the differences in job opportunities also led to just continuing to drive a wedge between um, the advantage and disadvantaged. It's really interesting. You know, if you look at the New Deal era, for instance. Opportunities created by the New Deal were often denied to African-Americans. Racial justice was not a priority at the time for white liberals and progressives. And so, you know, Jim Crow laws and segregation largely dictated who was able to profit off of the Roosevelt administration's efforts to bring about economic recovery and, you know, their efforts to tackle the searing poverty that most Americans were facing during the Great Depression. What's interesting to me about redlining is that, you know, the origins of the term redlining come from home ownership programs created during the New Deal era that later evolved to use race and color coded maps that ranked loan worthiness in cities based on the racial makeup of the neighborhood. And so black homeowners couldn't get home loans that were backed by government insurance programs. So in a nutshell, the idea is we don't want you in our communities and let's continue segregating you into a space where we don't have to see you and can suppress your economic opportunity. That on its own is problematic. You know, there's discrimination there, there's racism there. But I wonder whether in the real time of it, people were fully embracing what the true ramifications of this sort of racial exclusion would be. Because the legacy of exclusion from jobs, loans, services can still be seen today in federal programs and policies, as well as systemic inequalities in housing like we're talking about, or education, health, and the accumulation of wealth and income. I, I just, I don't know whether people considered that 
suppressing economic opportunity would have this long-term cataclysmic impact on things like generational wealth, access to education and better schools, crime rates and violence, health insecurity and early mortality rates. You know, the host of present-day issues we're facing in the United States is steeped in a history that set us up to have these very problems. Annika, how do we start to solve some of these issues that are so deeply rooted in our history and are still very pervasive today? Yeah, that is a great question and a, a great comment. I I think there's a lot of potential potential ways to address things. Um, I think one challenge that Chicago has in particular is there's many local sort of powers very concentrated at uh, at the alder alderman level. So there's alder people and there's, I believe, 77. There's 77 communities in Chicago. And it's just a, a huge number of local, local level, you know, politicians to be advocating for their particular area. And they all have a lot of power. And it's not a lot of sort of interaction between them or working across you know, across neighborhood lines. And so it it leads to kind of a challenge in terms of getting people to, or, you know, getting local um, elected officials to, to work with each other to come up with policies that would be beneficial to all constituents beyond their borders. Um, so that's certainly something, I mean, there's, I don't know enough about the the tiffs in Chicago, but it's a it's a financing tool, a tax incremental funding used by the city of Chicago for improvements within the city. And many people, much smarter than I, <laughs> can speak more more eloquently to what that can do. But that's another source of of, of funding and uh, something that could be leveraged to promote economic uh, stability and development in in struggling areas. Um, but, you know, on sort of a more human level, I think it's just so important that people educate themselves on the history of their communities, where they're from. I mean, Chicago's got a lot of people who come from other states who aren't necessarily familiar with, with the city and, and what it, in its history. And I think it's important that, you know, as voters and as individuals that we, we understand that, you know, Chicago is bigger than just like, you know, South Loop to, you know, Evanston, like there's plenty of other communities that many don't even venture into. So I just think as for Chicagoans or new people new to Chicago, I think it's important to understand, you know, what, what the city has gone through the history of redlining. I think um, the color of law is a great book for those interested in, in hearing about things that have affected similar places and the discrimination and just horrifying uh, government-sanctioned, yeah, government-sanctioned discrimination against people of color, particularly uh, Black people. So I think it's important for us to educate ourselves and understand the history and then uh, think about more of what, what we can do individually and as voters and as a society. 
Annika, this idea of educating ourselves about our history, I think, is really important. What you describe with redlining and the way that it's impacting us today, you know, like you said, Chicago's not just the loop to Evanston, although some people might like to believe that. Again, it's this idea of out of sight, out of mind, right? You know, the idea that we don't want to see certain groups and communities and whatever they're dealing with, as long as it's not facing us, then we don't have to worry about it. And so often we fail to see how apathy towards other human beings can drag down the collective. You know, what's the saying? Uh, You're only as strong as your weakest link. Segregating people from your neighborhood doesn't remove them from society. It just takes them out of your line of sight. And the impact of that oppression is something that will still be felt beyond the individuals that you segregate. I mean, yes, people will feel it to varying degrees, but in societies that are growing more and more in their diversity, I'm curious about this idea that what hurts one or a few of us can ultimately hurt the collective in ways we may not fully appreciate or understand. And so I guess the question really is, why are problems like housing instability issues that we should all be concerned about, regardless of whether we ourselves have been at risk of home loss or are the inheritors of generational inequality? Yeah, and 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 to answer your question, I, I'll go back to... I'll, talk about something that is sort of a tangible thing that, you know, as, as a voter and as a citizen, you can really uh, advocate for and, and think about. So the issue of zoning in, in cities especially is particularly fraught. Uh, it's something that it the zoning code dictates what can and can't be built in certain areas. And in a lot of places, areas are zoned uh, single family. And so single family zoned areas necessitate that, or when there's a single family zoned area, you, if you want to build a multifamily building, you need to seek a variance from the city. There's a whole process for it. And um, often people and communities are, are against it because they think it's going to density creates traffic and, and um, you know, chaos or whatever reasons people give for not wanting more, um, denser denser housing within a community. Um, But um, I have done some research into this when I was an intern at BPI Chicago, which is a policy nonprofit, legal and policy nonprofit in Chicago. Um, Some research into what happens when cities and states attempt to eradicate single family zoning, which basically can look different depending on the policy, but what it, the purpose of it is to allow for for more either you know building of larger multifamily housing that could be a two flat or it could be you know a you know a multifamily apartment um and the intended effect of this is to encourage greater opportunities for home ownership especially first time home ownership or opportunities for people to rent in an area that previously had only had single family home opportunities so so that's an example of ways that we can, like an, an example of something could that could potentially address or reduce generational inequities in housing. And, you know, why is this something that we should care about on a, you know, on a, when, if, if it's not something that affects us personally, I mean, it's, it's 
you know, a matter of, of shared humanity. It's, it's when, when people are shut out from communities because they can't afford to live there, maybe they're not able to access, you know, opportunities for schooling or for, um, jobs or for access to, to food, anything like that. It's, I mean, that's, that's a problem. That's something we should care about. And, and when it comes to people who are losing their homes due to foreclosure, again, it's, it's devastating. I mean, that's devastating on a personal level to a family and then zooming out to a, to an economic standpoint, you know, foreclosure in an area can decrease property values and cause neighborhood blight, which, you know, may not be something that, you know, somebody living in Lakeview or Lincoln Park really has to think about or, or be concerned with. But again, I just returned to the, the fact that this is something devastating to families and, and we should care. And so, you know, going back to my, my zoning soapbox, you know, if somebody's not able to afford to live in a, in a single family home, maybe building more housing that's, um, you know, multifamily would, would allow somebody who, who can't afford a certain home anymore to, to still be able to live in a neighborhood they want to, or, you know, rent or, or buy. Yeah. And when you talk about the broader issue, really what we're talking about here are our communities and what matters to us when we're looking at our communities, right? So when I was living in Chicago, I lived in Lakeview on the north side. And one of the things that bothered me tremendously was the fact that every time I stepped outside of the door, the only other black people that I saw were the homeless populations and the populations that looked like, you know, they might have been struggling with some kind of substance abuse problem. And, you know, the way that redlining works, you know, again, just to segment people into poor black communities, poor communities of color, wealthy white communities, it can really have a jarring effect on higher earning racial minorities who come into a neighborhood and see virtually no one else who looks like them. You know, there's a real problem there of not being able to see yourself in anything but the weakest parts of a society. And so when we look at the communities that we're trying to create, if we have a value of diversity, if governments and local municipalities have a value of diversity, it's really hard to sustain that when we aren't able to bring a space where everyone can feel like they belong and they're not just the token minority who will inevitably become exhausted from being the only one that's there and will then just leave to find greener pastures where there is more diversity. Absolutely. Really well said. We've touched on this a little bit already, but what do you think are some of the ways that we can try to address wealth inequality today? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, at a at a personal personal level, it's probably hard for people to if they don't necessarily have someone in their community or that they know of that that is experiencing, you know, you know, that is experiencing poverty and maybe not having a feeling like there's a tangible way to help or do something. Um, I think, you know, one example is within, you know, if, if you're a part of a local religious community or a church, I mean, I'm a, I'm a part of a, a church in my community and in, in uptown that, that serves a lot. Um, a lot of the members of our church are, are unhoused and, you know, we'll put on, you know, just 
community events and have people have people come and well feed people and and give them just community. And so, um, but there's also you know tangible ways that the church is helping people find housing opportunities. There's people who have uh, work in transitional housing and have opened up their home to people. There's um, also you know funds available to people who are struggling. And I think. Um, I don't know if that's a necessarily a satisfying answer to say, you know, just donate, donate to, to organizations or that are, that are doing good work and that you support. Um, I don't have an answer yet because I haven't read the book yet, but um, a former professor of mine, uh, Matt Desmond, who wrote the book Evicted, has a new book out called Poverty by America. And um, he, I've seen him, you know, speak about it and it's kind of making the case that everybody is profiting off of the poor (laughs) and it really is a personal Mm. issue and a moral issue and something that, you know, just in, you know, tax benefits that people receive and don't think about it's, you know, you're, you're benefiting and, you know, somebody else is, is not benefiting. (laughs) So it's probably not the most eloquent, uh, pitch for, for something that I haven't read yet, but I've, um, (laughs) but I, (laughs) After I read it, hopefully I'll, I'll have more tangible answers. But but I think it's important to really think of poverty as a moral issue, and especially if um, you know Notre Dame is a Catholic institution. Um, there, if it, that's you know or a belief that that you share, if you're if it's really important to think about um, the the least of these and those who are are struggling as something that you have a moral obligation to to help. So. Hmm. That was sort of a rambling answer, but no, I think it's great. I think what you're identifying is the importance of finding community-based solutions. You know what some churches are able to do at the local level to support members of their communities and people in the wider congregation, the wider uh, local community, finding ways to support your fellow patrons, whether it's through giving of your time or giving money. You know that's definitely one of the ways that we can make a small difference to some of these larger issues. I'm interested in getting your perspective on the corporate responsibility piece of what we're talking about and, you know, what corporations can do to make a difference, whether it's through the fiscal responsibility that they can educate people on, uh, the money that they can infuse into a community by creating jobs. You know, all of these different things uh, can certainly make an impact. And, you know, you think of Notre Dame, for instance, Notre Dame can help to transform the communities around us in South Bend. But it can also apply to any organization or corporation, Whole Foods in Chicago. What do you think corporations can do to help make a difference in the communities they belong to? Yeah, I mean, I think, as you said, you know, money is money is huge. And and for for corporations to. To donate to to set aside funds to. In my opinion, the best the best place to to send funds would be to pre-existing organizations. And um, sometimes I think there's a temptation of, you know, you know, a corporation or, you know, business gets really jazzed about a a solution and then tries to come up with this new, newfangled way to address it. And really there's already people doing the work and there's already, you know, organizations that exist that are seeking to help people. And sometimes it's just a matter of, of infusing them with, with more funds or, um, or more people at, you know, Notre Dame has this fellowship that I'm on and it's, 
incredible that I'm able to to do this work at Legal Aid Chicago. I mean, the fact that I'm here on this fellowship has helped us to be able to participate in this assistance with with Ida and the Illinois Homeowner Assistance Fund. And, you know, I am a body at Legal Aid Chicago that would not be there if not for these funds. And we are very, very busy in my practice group. So I I the fact that I'm able to be there is a testament to, you know, Notre Dame's commitment to to the public good and to the public interest. So money, <laughs> money's huge, funding funding people's projects and and pouring into to pre-existing uh, entities and, and organizations. Speaking of Notre Dame and the difference that you're able to make as a result of the Schaefer Fellowship, can you talk a little bit about your path in law school and how you actually ended up at Legal Aid Chicago? Yeah, so I um, I went into law school knowing that I wanted to do public interest work. I wasn't exactly sure of of the area. I had spent a couple years after graduation from college working in my community of of Dorchester, which is a, a lower income neighborhood of Boston, Massachusetts. And so I I loved the community work. I worked on a lot of issues of food access and food justice, which which I cared a lot about, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to to continue on that on that path. Um, so I was really open to open to things when I came to to Notre Dame. I basically did every possible experiential learning opportunity that I could. So I did uh, intensive trial advocacy. I was a part of the economic justice clinic. I was an extern with the city of South Bend. Um, I, you know, did everything I possibly could to the point that I almost did not have enough law credits to graduate because so many of them were <laughs> experiential. So check with uh, check with Jenny Fox um, about your credits. Um, but yeah, so I, I just really wanted to get my feet wet in different areas. And so that helped me kind of see the things that I that I was interested in. But I I never really got to a point where I felt like, oh yeah, like this is my passion. Homeownership is is my thing. But a lot of the things that I did kind of pointed in that direction. So at the economic justice clinic, I was working with people uh, trying to get loan modifications from their lender. Um, over the summer, I did, I worked with BPI Chicago, which is a, a legal uh, a nonprofit that works on policy issues. So I did a, worked on some housing policy. And then the next summer, I was at Pilly Intern, which is the Public Interest Law Initiative, which is a Chicago-based program that provides funding to summer interns at various nonprofits in Chicago. So I was a Pilly Intern with Chicago Volunteer Legal Services, and I worked in their chancery program. So I, I worked specifically with people experiencing foreclosure. So lots and lots of experiences that kind of pushed me in that direction of, of uh, home loss and home ownership, but ultimately I just reached out. Well, I had, uh, a former Schaefer fellow help me reach out on, uh, reach out to legal aid Chicago, um, and basically just ask them what they needed <laughs> and just ask. Cause I, I just said, you know, here are some of the things I'm interested in here, are things I've worked on. Are there any projects or things that, um, 
that would be beneficial to you. So sort of a topsy-turvy way of going about it. I didn't approach them with a specific project in mind, but it's a totally valid way of of getting a project set because they said, oh yeah, we could definitely use help with um, homeownership and COVID-19 hardship. And, and so then I crafted my proposal working with, with Legal Aid Chicago. Hmm. Yeah, what's really interesting to me about what you just said is this idea that you approached what you wanted to do professionally with a very open mind about what exactly it is you would be doing, but with a specific intention that you wanted it to be aimed at service. I think that that's really, really powerful and a great representation of what Noreim tries to emphasize as being a different kind of lawyer. You know, we try to impart this idea of the law as a service to others and you know, we're not always perfect at it, and certainly not everyone wants to do that. I mean, that's not everyone's interest. But it sounds like for you, approaching it that way was kind of a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was. I, I knew I wanted to go into public interest. I think the biggest question for me as I, you know, went into 2L and 3L was, well, do I want to do policy or do I want to do direct service? And that's kind of a big public interest question. Um I also, at that point, was not really thinking about, um, you know, working for local government or state or federal government, but that's, you know, also an opportunity, also an option. But um, I have worked in policy in the past, and I do enjoy it, uh, but I I really just wanted to work with people. And and so, you know, Legal Aid Chicago is a, is a great organization that does that direct service work. And so at least at this phase in my career, I knew I wanted to, to be working with, with clients and, you know, face-to-face or, you know, over the phone. So that kind of was, was where I landed, especially for this, this phase in my career. Hmm. You know, when we were talking with our uh, Bank of America fellows, both of them work in exoneration justice and, in our last episode, we spoke with Madison Kemker, who works in um, mental health um, in the prison system. And what was what was consistent with both of those interviews was this idea that the work is obviously very important, but it's a lot of work oftentimes for um, a small percentage of success. And, you know, the impact of that success is huge and it makes the difference. But, you know, you don't win a lot and you don't move the needle a lot because these are such huge issues. And the way that that can maybe bear on your mental health and, you know, your well-being as the person who's trying to advocate for these important issues. I'm curious what that what that looks like in a role like yours, because, you know, do you oftentimes have to deal hard truths to people. It seems like maybe given just what the nature of the work is, there might be more opportunities to um, to see to see the positive outcome and to actually help people. Yeah, it's in the work that I do, particularly related to foreclosure and homeownership, there are definitely hard truths that that I have to to, to give to people. So many of the intakes that come, that come to me, it's just too far along and there's, there's nothing that can be done or it's just wouldn't be affordable to get a loan modification or, or do a bankruptcy. And so the advice I'm giving is here's how you can 
leave your home on your terms with dignity and here are resources for for finding housing you know beyond this and that's certainly not a fun conversation to have it's sometimes people haven't really realized that this is the end of the road and they think there's something else that they can do so but I do think of it as still really valuable and, and important work and I'm grateful that I get to do it because I'm just giving them just empowering them with the information on how the process is going to work and what the judge is going to say and how to ask for extra time to stay in the home, which, you know, still isn't, you know, I'm still not able to keep them in the home necessarily, but I'm giving, empowering them with that information so that they can understand what's happening to them and, and, you know, leave their home with some, just some dignity. So I'm, I am able to do that, but again, it's still, it's still not a, a fun conversation to have. Um, but then when you are able to save a home, you know, I've fought to get people loan modifications and, you know, did emergency motions to stay a judicial sale. And that's always very gratifying to feel like you've sort of, someone's been saved from this, something that would have led to them having to leave their home. So that's, that is a very you know, emotional and gratifying to be able to do that. Um, but it's, you know, also a little anticlimactic. So it's like, okay, well now you, now you got to start making your mortgage payments again. And um, mm. so it's, but it's, yeah, it, it, it means a lot to be able to do that. But I am, what I am grateful for is that we're still just at the very least able to give people the information that they need. This is just what I was thinking of as you were kind of talking about, you know, when you reach that point where it's past, you know, the point of being able to to do anything and you will lose your home. Uh, are there any resources that legal aid is able to provide once once a family does get to that point um, where they've lost their home or they're going to lose their home uh, to keep them sheltered? Yeah, so so Legal Aid Chicago has a which something that's unique about them is we have designated social workers and a social work team, and so um, that is and a resource that we have. They're very busy, so <laughs> I can't always make referrals to them, but um, they have been able to assist people who 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 need you know additional help. Uh, due to their circumstances. We also, um, we have a housing practice group. And so from, from them, I've gotten resources about, you know, rent, finding, you know, how to rent, how to, you know, buy a home if, if possible. And so all the practice groups are able to kind of inform and help each other in terms of, you know, assisting with cross-cutting issues. So in, in that way, I've been able to, to get assistance from our other practice groups. Um, and yeah, I mean, there, there are city resources, state resources that I, that I direct people to, but it's, um, certainly definitely a hard conversation to have with someone, um, because, you know, so sometimes someone will be in a situation where they haven't been paying the mortgage for a very long time and they're still barely getting by. And then to tell them, okay, well, now you've got to find a place to rent when, you know, that's was never in their budget or hasn't been in their budget for a while. And so, yeah, it's, 
a really, really tough conversation to have with someone. And I've, I've had to learn how to, you know, just be empathetic, but straightforward, not give people false hope, not give people Mm. false hope as to what we can do for them either. Um, Sometimes Mm. I think people think that we can just resolve the entire issue for them, but a lot of times it's just a matter of, of directing them to resources and, um, you know, the people Mm. I encounter are often just very resourceful and are, you know, able to, able to pull something together, but it's, I, I couldn't even imagine the kind of, you know, mental, spiritual fortitude it takes to, to, to face a for, uh, face home loss, uh, with, and, and find alternate, alternate housing. Incredibly challenging. Annika, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to say about the work that you're doing or uh, Legal Aid Chicago? Yeah, I mean, I'm so grateful that I get to do this work. Uh, there's, there's something that Legal Aid Chicago does that I'm not involved with, but it's called the ADAPT Project, and it's helping people uh, either get uh, guardianship over family members uh, or obtain a transfer on death instrument. It's called a toady. And this is something that I think everyone should know about. And especially for those, you know, people who, you know, working with communities where there's someone owns a home, but may not have a will, or it's, you know, for whatever reason, the transfer on death instrument allows someone to, when they pass away, immediately transfers their home to whoever it is that they want, family um, family or spouse. And this prevents having to go through probate. And because I've been working with people who've had to go through that process and it takes a really long time and it could all be avoided by having a clear transfer on death instrument. So it's just an example of something that Legal Aid Chicago is you know, trying to address the issue upstream. And I, so I definitely promote that program for people. But um, beyond that, I... Like I said, I'm really grateful to get to do this work. I really love working with clients. I love working with my colleagues. Legal Aid Chicago has been just incredible, an incredible organization with lots of resources and great people. And it is, for me, been the ideal place for me to get my first experience as a, as a real attorney doing real work, helping real people. Annika Nielsen Kim is one of Notre Dame Law School's Thomas L. Schaefer Public Interest Fellows. She works in Legal Aid Chicago's Consumer Practice Group, where she focuses on preventing home loss in Chicago due to COVID-19-related hardship. Annika, thank you for the work you do and for joining us on the DEI podcast. And that's it for part three of our series on public interest law. Thanks for listening. The DEI podcast is produced by Notre Dame Studios. We'll be back in August for season two of the podcast, where we'll continue exploring social and cultural topics that give us a better understanding of issues related to diversity, equity, inclusion, life, community, and of course, law. But until then, take care.